Uh, and I'm, I'm serious when I say this. I'm, you know, I'm not going to guilt you guys or shame you. But man, if you are able to be a part of this, we'd love for you to be a part of it. It's a really cool experience. Starts today at 4 o'clock. So come hang. It's going to be good. Uh, today, though, we're jumping into this series full of Jesus. Six weeks, our pastors are going to walk through some of the different themes that really just come back to what is our hope, what is our prayer for every person who plugs into Emmanuel Fellowship Church? What, what, do we, what do we hope and desire that it will look like as your faith journey comes alongside what's happening in this family, in this congregation? And today, to start that out, we're going to kind of take some time to ground ourselves in the vision of Emmanuel, which is really birthed out of the vision of the church. So really, this, this comes back to this idea, right? So we use this phrase, and if you've been here like more than one week, you've heard it before, right? We, we use this phrase where we say, as Christ pours into you, he pours out of you. And it's something we really believe in. We really believe that the best way for the church to go out and actually like join with Christ to seek and save the lost is for the followers of Jesus to be so rooted and grounded in Jesus, so full of him, full of his gospel, full of his presence, full of his spirit, that the natural outpouring, right, of that kind of life connected to Christ is that it just, it just goes into the rest of your life. And what we're going to talk about today, specifically through the lens of this vision statement and kind of the biblical imagery connected to it, is this idea. When you meet with Christ, and I mean when you encounter him, when you engage him relationally, spiritually, emotionally, what you will find is that when Christ sees you, when Christ interacts with you, he sees you with sobriety. He engages you with real knowledge, meaning he knows you as you are. You're exposed in front of him. And yet with that knowledge, rather than standing in condemnation and shame, Christ stands in love and care. That his, his real intimate knowledge of the depth of our heart leads him to love and care for us all the more deeply. And then further upon that, to give to us, through his accomplished work on the cross, forgiveness and acceptance into his family. That's what Christ actually offers when you meet with him. That's what we want you to be full of, is that experience, right? So to get there, we're going to go on a rather long journey <laughs> So the mission of the church, it, I think it's really actually a good question if you're a Christ follower to ask is essentially, why the heck are we still here? I think it's a really wise question to ask. When you received Christ, when you became a Christian, became a follower of Christ, why did not he just like send down his heavenly vacuum cleaner and suck up your soul to eternity? If you have been washed in the blood of Christ and your sins have been forgiven and your eternity with him is guaranteed, why did he choose then to leave you in this world full of suffering, full of sin, full of injustice, full of hurt, full of disease? Why the heck didn't he go, okay, I got this one, like into eternity and perfection? It's a good question to ask. And if you've experienced the suffering that this broken, cursed world has to offer, whether you're willing to admit it or not, you've probably asked that question. This is why as Christians we have this phrase, like Marantha and I'm like, Lord, come soon. Because we long for the day when Christ will return and make all things new. So why are we here? Why did he leave us here? Well, luckily, Jesus answered this question very specifically. 
In all four of the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the story of Jesus is told, in the closing of each of those books, Jesus gives some, like we give some form of this commission that Jesus gave to his church right before he ascended into heaven, from which we like await his return, right? Like this is explained to us in each of the tellings of Jesus's life. I'm going to read us the more the most well-known one. This is from Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. Some of you might have this text memorized, and if you don't, you should put this one on your list of texts to memorize. This is a good one. Matthew 28:18 through 20 says this. Jesus came near and said to them, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you've spent more than 30 seconds in a church in America, you've heard some form of this text or this commission, right? Like this is a truth the church comes back to often. Jesus left the mission, the the purpose of his church, about as clearly as he possibly could. He spells it out for us. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them the holiness of Christ, the teachings of Christ, and do all of those things in connection and relationship with the present spirit of Christ that he's left here with his church, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty much like, that's right there. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them the holiness of Christ, do so in relationship with the spirit of Christ. That's, that's pretty like easy common ground for us to agree on. This is the mission of the church. This is the reason Christ has left his church here awaiting his return is to join with him in his work of seeking and saving the lost, of building the kingdom of God here on earth, of calling more and more unto him, right? This mission of the church is universal for the Christian experience. Regardless of culture, regardless of geography, regardless of time, regardless of church size, regardless of denomination, anything, this is the mission of the church that Jesus left for all Christians in all places at all time. Can we all agree on that one? You can amen that one. Which leads us, I think, to another really good question, which is essentially, okay, cool, yeah, we agree. This is the thing for all Christians. Going back 2,000 years, going forward as far until Christ returns, this is the thing Christ handed us. So we should, in wisdom, ask the question, so how do we best do that? In our context, in our time, in our place, with our people, what's the best way, the wisest way for us to do this thing Christ has handed us? This is when we get to talking about mission and vision. Now, really quick, I know these terms can be super cheesy, and if you read like business and leadership books and those things, they get used in such different ways so often that they almost lose their meaning. But for our purposes, I, really do, I think it's good for us to lean into these terms for a second, to think about the mission of the church and the vision of our church, which is the idea of the mission is the mission of the church. It's the goal of all Christians in all places at all times. The vision here at Emmanuel is how, is how our pastors have sat down and said, what's the best way for us to do this right here, right now with the people God has given to us? And what we've landed on in, in answer to that question is this phrase we use all the time. As Christ pours into you, he pours out of you which I know is like, that's imagery, right? That's not like plain black and white language, but I actually think it's helpful. I think it helps stick it in our brain. And by the way, it's biblical imagery. 
It's biblical imagery. What I think of, like, like visually, when I hear this phrase, as Christ pours into you, he pours out of you, what I think of is a champagne tower. Has anyone been to, like, a fancy wedding where they've had one of these? Right? Like, some of you are, like, teetotalers in the room, and you're like, no, I've never seen one of those. I've seen a sparkling cider tower. <laughs> But you, you, you get the, that principle here, right? Like you stack up the fancy glasses and then you pour into the top one and it fills up and overflows and pours into the other one and it spills down and eventually makes a huge mess, but it's really cool, right? Like that's the whole deal here. This is the image that pops in my mind when I think of our church, when I pray for our church. And when I think about this phrase, as Christ pours into you, he pours out of you. It's this idea that the gospel that Jesus gives us, the love, the acceptance, the forgiveness, the calling, like all the goodness that Jesus gives us, it's just too good to keep it to yourself. And if you are genuinely experiencing it, if you are genuinely bending your life around connecting to Christ, centering your heart, your life, your plans, your actions, your desires, your calendars, your, your, your life, your person around Christ, you cannot help but overflow him out of you. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? What is in you is what comes out of you. We, we, we may not like this, but we all know this is true. The thing that you spend your time with, the things that you prioritize, the stuff you take in, the stuff you fill up your heart and mind and soul with is what radiates out of you into the world around you. Many of us don't like that truth because if we're being honest, we think about the stuff we spend our time on and focus on and the media we take in and all those things and we're like, but that's not terribly great. <laughs> but we know it's true. We know that's true. What you fill yourself up with is what comes out of you. It is what radiates out of you into your family, into your relationships, into your school and work and neighborhood. The way you treat people is directly out of what you, like the fuel you're putting into yourself emotionally, spiritually, mentally, all of those things. And if you fill yourself with Christ, if you center your life around him, it will overflow out of you. It's unavoidable. Now, this image that we've given you guys is inherently a, a drinking-centric image. And by the way, I don't mean like alcohol drinking. I mean literal liquid sustenance, like going into a human body, right? I actually, uh, I, I use the champagne tower image, but like, I actually want you guys to think about this in terms of water. Because this is the imagery the Bible uses. There's a lot of imagery the scripture uses to talk about our relationship to Christ. But this theme of water is one that actually runs literally Genesis to Revelation. And so what I'd like to do today, we're actually going to spend some time and camp out in John 4, if you guys want to turn over there. But I'm going to take a hot minute to get there, because what I'd like to do is actually work us through the progression of the Old Testament imagery around water and its connection to our relationship to God, and kind of use that as a context to look at this passage in John chapter 4 and see how Jesus himself grabs a hold of this imagery in his conversation with the Samaritan woman, and then we'll just go from there. Sound good? Pray with me. Jesus, whew. We ask this morning that as we dig into this, Lord, that you would meet with us in a way our hearts need. Jesus, we ask that you would just, I just ask, Lord, especially for those of us that have spent a lot of time in church, maybe as little kids, Lord, I just ask that you would just circumvent a little of our cynicism today and you would meet us afresh. Pray that you would draw us again, anew, afresh, 
to just how crazy good, amazing your love is. Give us clear, sober eyes. Give us clear, unmuddied hearts to behold you again today and to consider just how good you are to us. Lord, we want to drink deep of the living water of your gospel. And we pray that you would do the work necessary in our hearts for us to meet with you in that way today. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's the deal. Water is really important. And I know we know that, right, like on an intellectual level. But the reality is we live in a place and a time in a context where we're actually really shielded from that truth. Right? I mean, like, seriously, like, take a minute and consider with me how much of your day is spent within about 30 feet of pressurized, clean, filtered, potable water. <laughs> right? Like, we never, unless you're driving somewhere, we very rarely get more than about 30 feet away from access to pressurized, clean drinking water. It's the world we live in, which, by the way, is a huge blessing. It's actually really good because, again, another thing we just don't have to think about very often in our context, but at any given time, you're roughly 75 hours away from dying of dehydration. Literally. Like about three or so days is the average how long a human being can survive without taking in any fluids. And there's some things that can like, affect that plus or minus, like depending on you know, how hydrated you are at a given moment, right? But the reality is... If you don't have water, you die, right? Can we like remind ourselves afresh of that, that like truth again? Which is why it's such an amazing blessing that we have the gift of infrastructure and we have pressurized potable drinking water 30 feet away from us at any given point. That's really, really cool. But it also shields us to some extent from the reality of just how dependent we are as creatures on clean, available, fresh drinking water. Now, if you rewind about 4,000 years and place yourself in the Fertile Crescent, this place where society really began to develop, this place where ancient Israel and the patriarchs and those places were, where you're smack dab in the middle between the salty Mediterranean Sea and a massive desert, the reality of the necessity of water gets a little more close to home, Right? Like, if you live in that place where you're literally between two just fields of death from lack of water in this little strip of land where there's good weather and plants grow and access to clean drinking water through streams and through wells and things like that, like, you understand how important water is. So if you go back and you read, like, Genesis 11 through, like, 30 and read about the age of the patriarchs, right? So, like, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... And in read through those guys, these are dudes who are living nomadic lifestyles where they move from place to place to place. And what you'll notice is whenever they pick up their family and move to a new place, usually kind of along the border of the wilderness here, one of the first things they did, these are men who were living in direct covenant connection to Yahweh, right? Like God had supernaturally revealed himself to Abraham and made a covenant relationship with him and reaffirmed it generation by generation through Isaac and through Jacob. When those guys picked up camp and moved, basically the first thing they did was they built an altar to God and they dug a well. And there's a good reason for that. Because after about 75 hours without access to water, you die, right? So when you pick up and move your family to a new place, you have a ticking clock from when your water runs out to when you die. 
So you dig a well. And you hope that well comes up with clean, drinkable water. I've got a picture of one of these ancient wells here. These guys were massive, and they were dug by hand. You see that huge pile around the well? That's from dudes with shovels digging a hole straight down until they found water, right? These wells were valuable resources. These wells were the difference between life and death in the wilderness. And so what these patriarchs did, I love this, when they go to a new place, they build an altar, they dig a well, they would very often name them. They would put this spiritual significance around the altars and around the wells. And the reason is really simple. Because it's a representation of God's provision in their life. These men lived in a covenant relationship with God where God had said, go, trust me, go where I tell you and I'll take care of you. And so when they pick up everything and move to a new place and dig a well and clean drinkable water comes out, it's reaffirming once again, God is who he says he is. He made a way for us. We're not gonna die of dehydration. We have access to water. These wells were really important. A good well, a good well that kept giving good water is a resource that a community would build around literally for generations, thousands of years. Our text today involves Jesus walking up to one of these wells dug by Jacob, right? Still providing good, clean, drinkable water thousands of years later. A well is a big deal. And what we see in these wells is that God uses the physical reality of thirst and the need for water to point to the spiritual reality that we are dependent on the presence and blessing of our creator God. And by the way, it continues beyond just the patriarchs. If you fast forward through the rest of Torah, when you get into Exodus and we read the story of God intervening supernaturally in human history to free Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt, when, when Israel leaves Egypt and wanders into the wilderness, what's the first thing that happens? They start complaining because they can't find good water. They're worried about this. God has taken them out of Egypt where they live next to a river and taken them out into the wilderness. And they find a water source, this big, huge spring, and go to drink it and find out it's not drinkable water. It's dirty, it's bitter, it makes them sick. And so they freak out. God, I thought this was your thing. I thought you were bringing us out here. Now we're going to die of, of dehydration. And so God intervenes supernaturally and makes the bitter spring sweet and God's people drink again. And if you follow the story going into Exodus 15 and then later in Numbers 20, multiple times God's people find themselves in the wilderness without access to water and they cry out to God and God supernaturally provides water for them. Both times through literally a spring of water shooting out of a rock. And there's a lot going on there that we could dig into. It could be its own weird sermon series. But for our purposes today, we need to be reminded of this truth. Once again, God is connecting a physical reality to a spiritual reality. You need water to live. You need me to live. You need to find sources of clean, drinkable water or you die. You need me to sustain you. You need me to be with you, to care for you, or you die. This is how it works. It makes the image all the more striking when you jump over to the age of the prophets. And God once again brings up this image of water. In, in Jeremiah 2, 
Remember, Jeremiah was the prophet who prophesied over Jerusalem as it was being sieged and conquered and destroyed, as God's wrath against sin was being dribbled out upon Israel for its sin. Jeremiah was the prophet representing God to his people in that moment. And in Jeremiah 2, at the beginning of his prophetic ministry, he lines out a list of sins. This is what you're doing, Israel. This is, is everything going on that's bringing this calamity upon you. And in Jeremiah 2, he lists these things out, thing after thing after thing after thing. And in verse 13, to sum it all together, he says this, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. This is an image, going back to the water image, for the present reality of the curse of sin in this world. By our sin, we rebel against our creator God and we push him away and we choose the things of this world, the sins of this world, the desires of our heart over and above our creator and sustainer God. You see, in this day, when you had these wells, even a good well might not actually provide water all year long. Remember, where, we, where we're talking about in the world, it's less like four seasons a year like we experience and a little more kind of like that rainy season, dry season kind of feel. It's a little closer to the equator, right? And so what might happen in these places is during the rainy season, the water table raises dramatically and that well provides really good water for nine, 10 months out of the year. But at some point, the water table drops low enough that the well runs dry, which once again, dry well means 75 hours and then you're dead. And so what people would do is they would dig cisterns around the well. They would dig these deep pits and line them with clay and plaster to kind of make them watertight. And it became this community responsibility all year long. When you drew water from the well, you put some into the cistern so that when dry season comes along and the well runs dry, you've got a bunch of big tanks of water that people can draw from so they don't die. So in this context, when God is reminding Israel, it is your sin, your rebellion that has brought about this suffering. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to provide for you, but you are rebelling against me and pushing away. The image he uses is once again, wells and now cisterns. And he says, you have done twofold sin. You have turned away from me, the well of living water, and you have drawn from empty, cracked cisterns that can't hold water. The image God gives here is someone who goes up to the well, and the well is full. It is bubbling and gurgling with fresh, clean water. And they look at it and then turn over and go, I think I'll draw from the cistern today. And they go over, but that cistern has cracked and drained, and it is dry as bone but they keep dropping their bucket down in the cistern going, oh, and why no water's coming out while there's water gushing out of the well 10 feet away. That image, right, is of a fool. That's a foolish thing to do. It's a foolish thing to do that results in death in a very real concrete sense. If you ignore the well of water and go back to the empty cistern over and over and over, you will not only not be satisfied, you will be dead, Right? That's the image God gives for what rebellion against him in sin looks like. And God's people, God's people at this point where we jump into our text in the New Testament, they have been in a dry season for a long time. 
God has worked his wrath against sin and destroyed Israel and destroyed Judea and the people are living, living conquered under pagan rule under the Roman Empire and they are eager, eager for God to restore them, for God to bring them a cool drink on a hot day. They're ready for it. They're longing for it. And put that, all of that, as kind of our mental context to read this text. In John chapter 4, we read this. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out by his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you a living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this well will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. No, duh. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who's called Christ. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I... The one speaking to you am he. Just then the disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking to a woman, yet no one said, "Uh, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they left town and made their way to him. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. It's one of the longer texts in John, but I love this narrative. I love this story. I think this, especially like putting it in the context we just did, right, of the, the history of the theological imagery connected to water, right? So here's the deal. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, and he, because of that, makes his way between Galilee and Judea relatively often. If you can put that map up for me. So in this point in time, Israel doesn't exist as a nation. Remember, this is a people who are conquered and subjected to the Roman Empire, And the result of that is that the majority of the Jewish population lived in these two regions, Galilee up there in the north 
in Judea down in the south around Jerusalem. But in the middle was this land called Samaria. Now, Samaria is kind of the remnants of the old northern kingdom. If you remember, right, like at one point Israel had a civil war. They split into two nations, the northern nation of Israel, the southern nation of Judea, and they both were conquered and destroyed, but they were conquered and destroyed at different times by different baddies, right? The northern kingdom Israel was conquered and destroyed by the Assyrian Empire and all but wiped out. And the Assyrians did this thing where they forced, like they forced refugees to move and shuffle around the kingdom so that people were so disorganized they couldn't build up rebellions. And the result was that those of Jewish ancestry who remained in the Samaria area were forcibly intermarried and mixed with all these other refugees who came to the area. And so between then and 400 years later, when we pick up in our text, what you have with Samaria is a bunch of people who have a lot of Jewish ethnic connection, but also ethnic connection to all sorts of other regions and cultures. And theologically, even though the Samaritans identified as Jewish theologically, their religious practice was deeply synchronized and woven in and mixed with all sorts of pagan practices. And the result of that was that the Samaritans considered themselves Jewish and the rest of the Jews did not consider the Samaritans Jewish. And there was a deep cultural hatred for Samaritans. Deep hatred to the point that Jews did not talk to Samaritans. We think of the word Samaritan positively because Jesus gave the parable of the good Samaritan, right? But the reason that parable was radical was because everyone he was talking to hated Samaritans with all their guts, right? But to get between Israel, to get between Galilee and Judea in a straight line, you have to go through Samaria. Now, Many good Jewish rabbis, literally to avoid stepping foot on Samaritan ground, would cross over the Jordan River, move north, adding like days and days to their journey just to avoid being near Samaritans. That's the intensity of the hatred that exists at this point in history. But Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't care. He loves Samaria. He's, in fact, about to bring his gospel to Samaria and reveal his identity as Messiah to a Samaritan woman before basically anyone else, which I just stinking love. I love that Jesus took that hatred that existed in his day and just said, that's not even a thing for me. And so he has to make his way from Judea to Galilee, and he travels straight through Samaria. And as they make their way through Samaria, Jesus gets tired and has to take a break. Now, really quick, I feel like we could just like take a huge, long, even good theological tangent there, but we won't because I'm way over on time. But just, just consider that for a moment, right? That Jesus himself got tired and had to sit down and chill and maybe let that inform your theology of work. Uh, but anyway, Jesus is tired and so he sits down at a well to take a break around noon. He sends his disciples to go into town and buy food and he's just hanging out, resting. And this woman comes up to draw water. Now this, by the way, just by itself lets us know something is up with this scene. I mean, first off, this scene is already awkward for a lot of reasons. It's awkward because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, wouldn't talk to Samaritans, much less ask them for help. But what's the first thing he says to this woman? Hey, can you give me a drink? I'm really thirsty. <laughs> These wells don't come with tools. You bring your own bucket, your own rope, right? So she walks up and is like, hey, can you get me a drink? Which is wild. No Jewish rabbi would ask a Samaritan for help, 
Much less, Jesus is a man, this is a woman, and that day, in that time, men and women who weren't married didn't talk to each other in public, period. So she walks up, and he says, hey, can you get me a drink? And just instantly, there's tension and awkwardness in the air as she's like, what is happening right now? What is this? Add into that the fact that she's there at noon. Now, now here's the thing, right? Like, this is another one of those things we just kind of easily miss. If every bit of water you have to have for the day needs to be carried by you to your house, uh, you're probably going to do that early in the morning. And here's the reason why. I don't know the last time you carried like a 30-gallon jug full of water, but it's heavy, right? Like, it's not fun. And so you want to get that done as early as possible when it's not a bajillion degrees outside, right? Like, the only reason this woman is coming to the well at noon, the only reason that would have been normal for her to come to the well at noon is because she wasn't welcome at the well in the morning when everyone else was there. And we're going to see why in just a minute. This woman is kind of a social pariah, right? So everything about this scene is just kind of painful and awkward. And Jesus, I love this, just cuts through all of it and says, hey, will you get me a drink? I'm thirsty. And it goes into this amazing conversation, right? Where she's kind of like, why are you talking to me? What's this whole deal? What's going on here? And Jesus just adeptly like cuts the whole thing. And then he connects, connects their conversation to the spiritual reality of what's going on. He has this line where he goes, look, if you know who is asking you for a drink, you would ask me for a drink. And I give you a drink of living water. And she's literally confused and is like, but you don't have a bucket. I have a bucket. But Jesus is connecting this to this long-standing theological imagery. Think about this, right? Think about this. The God of the universe, the creator, sustainer God, is sitting literally physically at the well that is a symbol of his provision to his people, right? This is Jacob's well dug by his hand, a sign of the provision of God to care for his people. And this woman is proud of that connection. This is Jacob's well. He drank out of it. And I'm good enough to drink out of it too because I am a daughter of Jacob. And Jesus is like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. But that's not the water you need. See, this, yes, absolutely, Jacob's well is a beautiful image of God's provision for his people. And you can come to Jacob's well and you can drink and your thirst is quenched. But a couple hours later, you're thirsty again. Because that's not what you actually need. What you actually need is connection to your creator, connection to your God, connection to the God who provided the well in the first place. And that I can do for you. That I can do for you. And he cuts through and leads this conversation. And he does this piece that's really, really kind of painful to read. You know, the scripture tells us the word of God is like a two-edged sword, that it cuts and divides. Because the reality is, oftentimes, to get to the grace of Christ, we have to cut through the callousness in our lives built up by sin. And so Jesus turns his words into a scalpel and just cuts directly to this woman's heart and exposes her deepest shame. He calls her out as an adulterer. He's right there, a stranger she's never met. Ugh. And it's painful to read that piece as he takes her deepest shame and just goes, look at this. I know this about you. This is not secret from me. And just exposes this woman, right? And that is painful to engage, but it's so important. It's so necessary because the reality is Christ sees this woman 
with sobriety. He sees her as she actually is. He sees the deepest parts of her heart, the parts that she doesn't want anyone to know. He sees them exactly as they are. And his response is not shame. His response is not condemnation. His response is not to tear her down. His response is to love her and dignify her. I mean, he engages her. He has conversation with her. He digs into theology with her. These are things that that, that were not appropriate for a rabbi to a Samaritan, for a man to a woman, but he loves her. And in his love, he dignifies her and engages her, knowing exactly who she is, knowing all the things about her that she doesn't want anyone to know. And then, and then, to cap this whole thing off, he invites her into the truth of his kingdom. He draws the conversation back to the gospel. And as, she, like, as they get into the weeds of the theology, she goes, you know, here's the real thing. We're waiting for the Messiah to get here. And when he gets here, he'll let us know what's up. He'll let us know that Samaritans are really included in the kingdom. And Jesus is like, yeah, he totally will. <laughs> in fact, I'm him. Welcome into the kingdom, right? He draws her into his ministry. I love this. He sees her exactly as he is. He sees her with sobriety. And his response is love and care. His love and dignity. And not just loving her and dignifying her, but actually inviting her into the reality of the kingdom. Inviting her into forgiveness of sins. Beloved, I hope it's not too much of a stretch for you to consider that this is how Christ engages you. If we could put this up here. That when Christ meets with you, when we say your heart, we want your heart to be full of Christ, this is what we're talking about. Because when you meet with Jesus, this is how he engages you as a sinner, as someone whose heart is broken, who's fallen, as someone who chooses rebellion, as someone who runs to the empty cistern drawing over and over and over when the living well is right there. When Christ engages you, beloved, he engages you with real knowledge seeing you exactly as you are, knowing the depths of your sin, knowing the things about you that you would die before you brought them into the light to anyone. He knows every single piece of it. And he does not respond to you with condemnation or shame or hatred or anger. His response to you is love. In fact, that broken sinful state, when he sees his image in you, you are precious to him. And it actually spurs him to love and compassion for you. And because of his accomplished work on the cross, because of what he's done for you, because of the sufficiency of the cross on your behalf, he doesn't just meet you with love and dignity, but he actually offers you real redemption and real forgiveness. He invites you, includes you in his kingdom. And his work is sufficient to make you not what your sin is, to make you righteous and holy and perfect and included. This is how Christ meets you, church. This is the result of interacting with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the lover of your soul. That he sees you exactly as you are and gives you love and dignity and forgiveness and inclusion. Come on, church. Look how she responds to this. She drops her stuff and runs into town and tells everyone. I want you to think about this. Her response to being engaged by Christ in that way is to run into the town that hates her and proclaim the gospel by sharing her shame. 
Come, see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What the heck could possibly inspire someone to move from, I only go to the well at noon because I'm not welcome, to running through the town saying, he knows everything. Come see this guy. It's that. It's that she's actually been filled with Christ. She's actually been invited into the game. I mean, he revealed himself as Messiah to her. Right? What an amazing gift. He invites her in his kingdom. Beloved, here's the thing. When the God of the universe, the lover of your soul, meets you with that kind of gospel truth, I know you exactly as you are, and I love you, and you are included, and I forgive you. When the God of the universe meets you with that truth, your heart is not enough to contain that much love and grace. It overflows out of you. It spills into the world around you. And when this woman met Christ, really met Christ, and was filled to the brim with the love, the amazing truth of his gospel, it spilled out of her into her community. Come on, church. Woo! Jesus joyfully gives the living water. There's always enough, always more to spare. There's always enough to fill you up and spill out into the world around you. The Bible ends in Revelation 21 with this amazing picture of the eternal kingdom of God when Christ returns and makes all things new. And in that book, God returns to a lot of the images he's used throughout scripture to talk about his relationship. And one of the ones he returns to is the image of water. In Revelation 21, it says this. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Hear this, church. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. Beloved, this is where we're going to end today. Chris, if you want to come back up. I just want to ask you today, if we take a few minutes to sing, to take communion, to end out our time, I want to ask you to just consider our sweet Jesus afresh. Consider the wells you run to. The wells that seem like they make sense. The wells that seem like they will fill your heart. Whether that's the sins that you run to, the things of this world that prompt, whatever it is. Like, imagine with fresh eyes the wells that you run to. Look at them as they are, as cracked and bone dry cisterns. And consider the well of living water available to you. Consider that there is enough that you can drink deep from the well of Christ, that he will meet you with sobriety and knowledge and, and respond to that with love and dignity and forgiveness and inclusion. Look at that afresh. Consider afresh the insane goodness of our God on your behalf. How kind he is to you. I'm going to leave you with a really weird image. We have this very old cat named Mitzi. She's my grandma's cat when you hear I have a picture of her. She's 20. And she's a huge fluffball. She's like bones and fluff, and that's it. And, uh, and, and here's, what she, here's the thing about Mitzi. She's not content to drink out of her water bowl, and it causes problems in our house. She doesn't like her water bowl. She likes to drink out of the faucet in the bathroom. And so when she realizes I wake up in the morning, and I get up before everyone else and the kids are still asleep, 
She runs into the bathroom and jumps up on the sink and yowls until I turn the faucet on for her. And so I've tried like everything I can. Like I've put her water bowl in there and she like doesn't care. And the reason she doesn't care is because that cat is dead set on drinking cold running water, right? And then by the way, like I'll even like, I'll turn the faucet on like a little bit, like to make it quieter, like so my kids won't wake up. And she is not content. Like she wants a fire hose before she'll like put her little sandpaper tongue in there. And so I turn the faucet on all the way and she just shoves her face in it and just, and like gets soaking wet and it's a mess and it's kind of hilarious and it's kind of cute. And here's the reason I bring you to that before we end our time. Beloved, I want to invite you today, today, to consider afresh the well of the living water of Christ. The well that is right here, right now, you can come to Jesus literally right now before you leave this space and you can be filled to the brim, filled to overflow with his love for you, his grace for you, his presence for you, his goodness for you. And I want to invite you, church, don't approach the well, the living water of Christ. Don't sniff at it. Don't take sips. Just embody your inner 20-year-old cat and shove your face right in there and drink deep. Drink deep. Take a few minutes to pray and be sung over and we'll end our time.